What's going on guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. Today I have on with me Dr. Greg Potter. Greg has an MSc in exercise physiology. He has a PhD in sleep, nutrition and metabolism and Greg helps people with high performance goals. So physical events and helping them with their sleep and similar things like that. So I spoke to Greg in the past before. Greg's always great to get on. A really nice guy. Very, very genuine Someone that I think would be great to have a couple of pints of beer with and have a really good conversation with. He's really, really down to earth and he's a very, very knowledgeable and smart guy. Just before we jump in, I just want to mention Greg's new company, Resilient Nutrition. We spoke a bit about it on the podcast, but he's been kindly uh, offered me a discount for the people who are listening. So if you check out his website, resilientnutrition.com, you can use the the discount code HEALTHMASTERY10 to get 10% off. So check that out. Haven't tried the product myself, but I really trust Greg and I want to pay, pay back some uh, some juice to him for coming on this podcast and, and sharing some great information. So today we talk all about um, sleep and stress and how to manage your sleep in stressful environments. Really, really in-depth and applicable um, conversation. So if you do enjoy this, please share this and um, please um, tag me on your Instagram stories or whatever social media platform at adamac192 and always please go ahead and leave a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. But without further ado, let's get into this podcast with Greg Potter. So Greg, nice to chat to you again, man. Yeah, great to be back. So since we last spoke, I think like we just mentioned off air was about two years ago now at this stage. Uh, what have you been up to since then? Quite a lot, I suppose. I've probably moved house about 12 times in that period. (laughs) I'm now officially a gypsy. And along the way, I've been involved in multiple different projects. Last time we chatted, I was working for humanos.me. And since then, I spent most of last year working on a startup project, which was trying to develop an app to automate personalized health guidance to improve long-term health. And that fell through around the start of this year. And alongside that work, I've done various work as a consultant for both individuals and companies. And last year, I was helping my friend Ali get two guys ready to row the Atlantic. And we helped them specifically with their nutrition and their sleep and they were quite successful they ended up breaking the world record in january this year and we developed some products to help them along the way as you imagine if you've got two guys who are 100 to 110 kilos who are rowing around the clock for more than 30 days at a time they need very high energy intakes to try and sustain their rates of energy expenditure and their body mass. And we therefore formulated some energy dense, easy to digest, portable and stable products for them. And we began using these in other contexts too with different athletes and ourselves. And along the way, we just realized that they're useful in lots of different contexts. So at the start of this year, we decided to develop those products en masse and we've since been refining our formulation of those products. And now we have a company named Resilient Nutrition, 
which is launching these products and they're named Long Range Fuel in July. And hopefully our site, resilientnutrition.com, will be live at the end of this month. And we're excited to bring those to the world, but that's been occupying the vast majority of my time of late. Very interesting. What kind of stuff are you selling? I, I could only imagine that if two guys are 110 kilos and they're rowing in a boat and it takes, how long would that take them to cross the Atlantic? About 36, 37 days. Yeah, they they need a lot of food. I mean, the average person probably eats, I, I guess when you take into account like food volume, like two kilos or something of food a day. Um, how, how do they fit all that food unless they had like did they have something that they were attached to the boat to carry their their supply no it's all kept on board and it's kept out of sunlight but it's not like they've got refrigeration or anything so everything needs yeah. to be quite stable and there's a massive onus on minimizing the mass of the boat mm. for that reason you want the things that they're consuming to be as energy dense as possible and that of course helps them consume enough calories but you have to weigh up the fact that being on a boat for that long is likely to lead to some seasickness too. So they're constantly trying to get in enough energy in a variety of different formats because variety is key to both supporting their nutrient needs but also getting them to eat food in the first place because people get bored of eating the same things over and over again. Yeah. And we, as a result, developed this range of different products. And this long-range fuel product comes in four different varieties, which are better suited to different times of day. And each of those four varieties is available in different flavors. And in the future, we might release some additional flavors too. But while we developed that for use with these guys initially, we're now using it in a variety of other contexts and we're actually helping a lady this year sail around the world single-handedly in a competition named the Vendée Globe and she's going to be using the product for that too. That's pretty interesting. So what is within these specific products themselves? Uh, I doubt it's like liquefied chicken curry one one day, right? (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you say that because... The majority of what these competitors will consume, or at least competitors in these types of events have consumed historically, is freeze-dried meals, which isn't like liquid chicken curry, but <laughs> it, it is also a little bit like that once you've heated it and added the water to it. Yeah, but the products are all the products are all nut butter based, and they're specifically based on tree nut butters as opposed to peanut butter. And the thing that makes them distinct is that we add clinically proven doses of ingredients to enhance both mental and physical performance. I mentioned earlier that it comes in different varieties. Specifically, it comes in two varieties that we call Energize. And these contain caffeine plus L-theanine, the idea being that Caffeine supports physical performance in both endurance exercise and in strength and power exercise. And the combination of caffeine plus L-theanine is effective in that L-theanine tends to reduce anxiety and might have some additive positive effects on the cognition enhancing properties of caffeine. Caffeine tends to 
improve mood and vigilance and speed reaction time, possibly enhances working memory in some people. But when you add L-theanine, you may, for example, help reduce mind wandering and offset any jitteriness that high dose of caffeine can cause. So we've got that version, which is just named Energize. And then there's also an Energize and Rebuild product, which contains added whey protein isolate and L-leucine. And the idea behind that is that when you add those specific proteins and amino acids, you can enhance the actions of the product on body composition. So whey protein isolate is an exceptionally high quality protein source in terms of its amino acid profile and digestibility. And L-leucine is the only amino acid that independently triggers muscle protein synthesis at relatively small doses too. So we have the energized products and then for people who want to support their body composition too, and specifically their muscle protein balance, there's the energize and rebuild product. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have calm products and these contain KSM 66 ashwagandha, which is a standardized form of ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is a herb that's been used in Ayurveda for millennia to help keep people, keep people calm and help them better cope with stress. And there's also some interesting evidence showing that when people regularly consume ashwagandha, they may boost their cardiorespiratory fitness, and they may also accelerate their adaptations to strength and power exercise such that they gain muscle mass and strength slightly faster when they do resistance training. And so while the energized products are better suited to early in the day because of their caffeine content, the calm products are better suited to late in the day. And like the energized product, the calm product also comes in that rebuild version that contains added L-leucine and whey protein isolate. So just to reiterate, you've got energize, which is caffeine and L-theanine, energize and rebuild, which is those plus leucine and whey protein isolate, calm, which is ashwagandha, and calm and rebuild, which is ashwagandha plus L-leucine and whey protein isolate. And so far, we've had really, really encouraging feedback on all of them so far. And unlike many similar products that are out there, they don't contain any rubbish. I'm a bit of a Nazi when it comes to nutrition and very much view things through the lens of an ancestral health approach. And so these products are based on whole food there are no strange ersatz uh, ingredients in there. And I've tried to formulate them such that they support both short-term performance and long-term health. And we also consider lots of other factors too in the way that we go about our business. So for example, we only use recyclable packaging and we'll be donating 1% of our sales initially to a charity named the Coalition for Rainforest Nations, which helps protect biodiversity and mitigate climate change by working with communities in tropical countries to help save their rainforests. That's, that's really interesting. I have a ton of questions, um, but we could probably get into a completely different topic than what we were going to talk about. <laughs> but but are, are they the only supplements or the only foods, substances that they consume? Just those four things? As in those ingredients? I, I, sorry, I, I specifically meant uh, the, the rowers, for example. 
Ah, no, no, absolutely no. not. No. Yeah, so, I, I was thinking that they'd be having a shit ton of caffeine if that's all they took. <laughs> no, no. They consumed a variety of foods from freeze-dried foods to okay, gotcha. these long-range fuel products and dried fruit, some protein powders and some other things too okay. to support yeah. their micronutrition. Okay, Th- that's interesting. Um I actually just before this podcast, I had a really bad sleep for the first time in a while last night and I needed a coffee, but I get a bit, I, if I don't sleep that well, I get a bit, a little bit anxious on edge like, and, uh, but I needed a coffee. So I actually had LT in with it, with the, with the cup of coffee. Cause it just, like you said, takes the, the jitteriness away a little bit, even though I just having one, one small cup of coffee. But, um, and last night I've been regularly consuming <clears throat> K, KSM 66 as well. Um, mm. been doing that very well and, and they're pretty much two of the only staple supplements that i that i would have in my uh in my in my kind of supplement stack i suppose mm. um yeah because yeah the nootropics point is is really uh interesting to me i remember like way back when i was maybe 22 or something like that i tried to formulate a nootropic supplement based off mm. of like a pr- pr- proprietary blend based off of a uh, all these like I, I don't know if you've heard of them. I'm sure you have the racetams like paracetam, phenylparacetam, oxyracetam. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was great, but I didn't realize that it was completely illegal to like to do this. <laughs> so like it didn't pass the, the the medical board at all. They they wanted like twenty grand just to, for me to go through a, a basically a a process of, of review and then at that point it probably would have been rejected anyway but uh but yeah it's, uh, it was good while it lasted but um but yeah i'm really interested in that but i think a lot of companies or i mean a lot of governments are clamping down on those kind of non-natural mm. food substances because it's either it's not technically a food substance because they're chemically produced or they're, they're produced in a lab and they're not yeah they're synthetic occurring. yeah yeah they're synthetic exactly um yeah. but they're not yeah, it's interesting. Um, but yeah, um, on the with with the supplement as well. Just another question before we kind of get into the meat of this. But sure. uh, you mentioned that you use tr- uh, butters. Is that because are the guys fat a- fat adapted to for that? Tr- is there any specific? Is it just because it's a higher energy source be- per amount of of grams, basically, or is there any particular reason you use fat rather than say some form of uh, monosaccharide sure so the guys weren't necessarily fat fat adapted they weren't on low carb diets it's more a function of the fact that they need to minimize the mass of what they're carrying and when you have a food matrix which is that calorie dense it's easier to consume calories at a higher rate which is critical to them to support their fat-free mass over the course of the race but with that said one thing that I'll add is that the longer the event, the lower the intensity of the exercise that can be sustained, and therefore the greater the reliance on fat oxidation for energy. And I didn't want to make another high-carbohydrate product because I know that the energy gels of the world are so ruinous for lots of people's guts and so on. It's so typical for people over time to experience more and more bloating and energy swings and some related issues too. So for example, some skin problems over time as people consume 
energy gels and sports drinks over the course of their careers. And for that reason, I, I wanted to make something which is whole food based. So I see this appealing to the endurance and ultra endurance athletes of the world. And then people doing shorter duration events who are on low carbohydrate diets or people like ourselves, Adam, who need quite high energy intakes anyway, just to sustain our body masses. Great. Greg, you give me a, a spoon and a tub, a tub of peanut butter and I can maintain my energy. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can get some sense to you. No worries, mate. Uh, yeah, that'd, that'd be cool. I'm actually speaking to like Brandon, Dr. Brandon Roberts tomorrow uh, on the podcast about uh, some research he's been doing on a uh, keto keto bulking. So that's pretty interesting. Um, mm. I, Has it been I, published? Uh, yes, I think so. I think it may be a meta analysis. Uh, I'll have to confirm. But um, I was reading I know, the other day. Yeah, I know Fionn McSwinney published a review recently looking at the ketogenic diet in athletes and. It requires a lot more research, but based on the data published so far, I think that for the most part, it doesn't seem to negatively affect performance in very long duration activities and, and very short duration activities too. I think for intermittent sprint type exercise, it's probably not optimal, mm-hmm. but it certainly requires a lot more study. But with that said, I think it's always necessary to temper enthusiasm for things like the ketogenic diet when something is really in vogue as it has been the last few years. And I think people at times get a bit carried away. So while I definitely see its utility, particularly for certain clinical populations at specific times, it's not something I would necessarily recommend at scale. Yeah, no, I've tried it myself before once or twice just to, just to try it basically. And I just, a person just couldn't stick to it. I just, my, my, yeah. I don't know if my, if my palate would change, I guess it would at some point, but I just didn't have the palate for high fat foods. If that makes sense. I just kind yeah. of got really sick of eating high fat foods. I just was almost feeling nauseous and I wasn't even eating like, I wasn't trying to bulk or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, Greg, so when we're talking, um, we kind of talked about it at the beginning and then we kind of went, went off on a tangent a little bit, which was <laughs> great though. I really enjoy talking about this stuff, uh, but we got a time limit. So mm. when, when going back to, I suppose, working with those guys and, and then trying to apply what you've learned or, or what you've learned over your whole uh, career, how does, how does stress, uh, both physiological stress and uh psychological stress or and if, if they can even be kind of if they can even be separated not really but how do they affect sleep then and say and say high performance athletes but then also people who are say recreational athletes or or people who would maybe want to improve their health and their performance but aren't being paid to be uh an, an athlete yeah so I, I could give you a very long answer to this question but I will try not to. And I suppose it starts with defining what stress is. And I know that sounds probably very obvious, but it's something that people have gone back and forth about over the years. And I think for our purposes today, we can just define it as an organism's physiological and psychological responses to some sort of internal or external stressor so that could be an environmental condition or some sort of psychological stimulus for example 
And one thing that's important to note is that this is something that's very subjective. And for that reason, whereas one person might respond quite mildly to a given stress that somebody else might respond quite severely. And this is very relevant to sleep. And specifically, there's a concept known as sleep reactivity. And sleep reactivity describes the trait-like degree to which stress exposure disrupts sleep. And normally the result is some sort of difficulty either falling asleep or staying asleep. And what this means is that people who have high sleep reactivity will quite drastically experience impaired sleep quality when stressed and all of the negative consequences that follow from that. But I will add that sleep reactivity is perfectly normal and everybody will experience some degree of this when faced with certain challenges and those challenges might be anything from sleeping in a different environment. So there's something named the first night effect, for example, in which it's almost as if your brain is half awake when you're sleeping in a novel context, or it could be some sort of circadian disturbance as a result of flying across more than three time zones, or it could be that somebody consumes caffeine too late in the night. But an increasingly large body of research basically shows that this type of sleep reactivity is an important determinant of somebody's predisposition to insomnia and possibly some other sleep and stress-related disorders. And there are lots of things that influence somebody's sleep reactivity, which include everything from genetics to biological sex. So women seem to be more disturbed by these types of stresses than men. And then also how environmental stressors affect somebody. So the nature of the actual stressor itself. Mm. So I know that, um, like what I've experienced firsthand with, with working with people who would say be, say middle, not middle age, but say men in their mid twenties to mid thirties, um, mm. that, they try to do everything to optimize their sleep environment. So the, uh, you know, the physical environment, the, the temperature, the, the, the amount of light, the time, even in bed. Um, and then things like reduction of stimulants close to bed, uh, minimal food, or, or at least only keeping protein close to bed and minimize the amount of calories or fat or, or fiber towards bedtime. And they would often still, um still feel like or, or still have sleep issues where they're either waking up uh semi-regularly or they, they really want to sleep more and i find personally that a lot of it seems to be either uh, racing thoughts things going on in their head or yeah. just they they have a stressful lifestyle what i mean by that is either they've got it maybe maybe they moved house recently or they've got a young you've got their first young child or or they've got a, a high pressure job or at least a high demand job we're in a, in a corporate environment um that just it just takes a, a lot of mental toll on them and then it's hard to kind of switch off even if they really want to give themselves uh you know if even if they allow themselves the perfect amount of time to get sleep they they bought all the gadgets 
the, the sleep trackers they're they're trying their best to sleep and it just doesn't uh, doesn't happen in the, in that case i'm sure that you've experienced that you i know that you work with some corporations and um, what, what kind of advice do you give to people in, in that scenario and how do you um how do you portray that this actual stress that's going on perhaps may have upstream or sorry downstream effects on on your actual sleep quality this is a really big question and what i'll just say at the start is that i work as a consultant to a couple of companies but it's not as if i go into large companies and help their employees sleep better for the most part my work is with individuals but with that said all of this type of work begins with some sort of assessment of somebody's sleep and all of the different factors that could be contributing to their poor sleep. And we have so far focused on insomnia, but I just want to add that there are multiple categories of sleep disorders. There are six categories. And the reason that I tend to focus on insomnia in these types of discussions is just that insomnia is the most prevalent and maybe a third to a half adults will experience some of the symptoms. And basically what it is, is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or difficulty arising from waking up earlier than somebody would like, or difficulty just because somebody feels like their sleep was poor quality. It's any of those things, plus some sort of associated daytime dysfunction, which could be negative mood. It could be difficulty concentrating at work. It could be short-term memory loss. And when helping people sleep better, what I try to do is, of course, assess somebody's general health. And as an example of this, if somebody has some sort of existing psychiatric issue or disorder, such as a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder, then their sleep problems can arise from that. Likewise, Insomnia sometimes is the result of some sort of medical condition. And there are numerous different categories of these, but relevant to our listenership today, there are things like arthritis and and pain, which might result from exercise habits that can disrupt sleep. And then there are some other things to consider too, such as any medications and substances that people take and widely consume medications such as certain serotonergic antidepressants can disrupt sleep quite a lot. But if we rule those things out, then as you mentioned, a lot of this will arise from some sort of a rumination in response to a life event. So you have these different factors that will influence somebody's predisposition to developing insomnia. And those include things like age and Older people are, of course, more likely to experience insomnia than younger people are. Then you have some sort of precipitating event, and that might be an acute stressor. A lot of people will have experienced disrupted sleep during the COVID-19 pandemic, and that might be because they're concerned about the future. So that type of worry may have exacerbated any existing sleep issue or propensity to developing a sleep issue. And then there are perpetuating factors, which are some learned negative sleep behaviors that will 
basically reinforce their sleep problems. And one example of this is that people who have insomnia will spend more and more time in bed because they think that if they spend more time in bed, then they will occasionally fall asleep and catch up on sleep that way. But the problem is that what actually ends up happening is that their brains learn to associate their beds with somewhere where they're awake. And in that way, they perpetuate their sleep problems. And one thing that is very common to see, which you mentioned, is this type of performance anxiety to sleep better, in which people put more and more pressure on themselves to sleep. And ironically, that actually perpetuates their problems. So when we've been through this type of assessment, I'll generally start by identifying a couple of low-hanging fruit that people can implement to improve their sleep and then add additional interventions over time as people reinforce these habits. And the selection of the intervention, of course, depends on the source of the person's sleep disturbances. But typically, we'd go through this type of approach for at least six weeks and I'd always begin by having somebody keep a sleep diary. And the particular sleep diary that I use is called the consensus sleep diary. And the reason that I use that is that it gives me the information that I need to assess how somebody's sleep is changing. And one source of information that I'm interested in is somebody's subjective perceptions of how well they're sleeping, which isn't normally tracked via wearables that are commonly worn nowadays. So I'll have somebody keep a sleep diary and it's preferable to have at least a week's worth of data before beginning and selecting an intervention. But typically the first interventions would begin with at least one type of behavioral intervention. And that would normally entail having the person stop napping during the daytime because when somebody naps, they pay off some of the pressure that's accumulated during wakefulness, which helps to consolidate their sleep overnight. And typically, the place that I'll start is applying a principle named stimulus control of behavior. So going back to the notion that when people struggle with their sleep, they sometimes start to associate their beds with being somewhere that they're awake. The idea behind stimulus control is to save the bed for sex and sleep only because that way the person will start to relearn the association between the bed and somewhere where they spend their time asleep and not doing anything else. So what that entails is A, only going to bed when sleepy. B, if somebody wakes up during the night and they don't fall asleep within 15 to 20 minutes, then they should get out of bed and do something relaxing elsewhere in a different room in dim lighting until they feel sleepy again. And that might be something like meditation or re- reading a book or doing a crossword or working on a puzzle, anything that's fun, but not so stimulating as to likely be disrupted to sleep. And One of these behaviors, and I might start with both of those behaviors, will typically be implemented alongside some other changes to their lifestyle. So you touched on sleep hygiene there, and sleep hygiene changes are typically necessary but not sufficient to helping people who have insomnia. And these, of course, include everything from getting enough physical activity during the day to spending plenty of time outside and minimizing exposure 
to light around the sleep period from consuming food too late in the day to consuming excessive quantities of stimulants or consuming stimulants too late in the day, abusing alcohol, using certain medications and maybe not having some sort of wind down routine before bedtime. And a pre-bed relaxation ritual is very helpful, particularly for people who have that type of cognitive arousal for bedtime that you mentioned earlier. And there are lots of relaxation exercises that people can engage in, but some ones that are particularly helpful are things like music. If people just need to wind down, but if people have specific ruminations that are disrupting their sleep, then there are some other strategies that might be more potent. And some of these center on some quite simple diarizing activities So if, for example, people are especially worried about certain events at the moment, then I'll often have them schedule some worry time around dinner time. And the idea is that they'll sit down for 15 minutes or so and list things that they're concerned about. And then in an adjacent column, list things that they can do about that concern So that might entail things like reaching out to somebody for help with a specific issue, or if the thing that someone is concerned about is not something that's within their control, take, for example, climate change, then they will simply note that they can't do anything about it. But the idea is that at least by noting that, it will help get it out of their head. And then for people who are very busy, such as ourselves, Adam, making a to-do list within a couple of hours of bedtime can be very helpful because a lot of people go to bed ruminating about everything they have to get done the next day. And sometimes that will interfere with their ability to fall asleep. And there's been some work showing that during transient bouts of insomnia, when people go through this type of to-do list exercise in which they list everything they have to get done the next day in as much detail as is necessary, they tend to fall asleep faster And when I have people do that, I always have them do it using a physical diary and then keep the diary by the bedside in case they wake up in the middle of the night with a racing mind and realize they've forgotten to list something. They can simply reach by their bedside to the notebook and then jot down whatever it was that was on their mind. Yeah. Like, like that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you mentioned uh, it kind of baffles me that someone would lose sleep over not that climate change isn't a huge problem but it's just so out of i mean one person yeah they can make an impact but like if they're losing sleep over that but uh, but i guess people are are just different and it's just how i you know view the world um but but is that something that you commonly would see people like such such huge out of your hands per se um things No, not commonly necessarily, but what I'll say is that because most of my work focuses on trying to help people at scale, so think of the app that I was trying to develop last year or Resilient Nutrition, the project I'm working on now, when I work one-on-one with people, I normally charge quite a lot just because I, I want to help as many people as possible, so I don't necessarily want to spend lots of my time doing that. And for that reason, the people with whom I work are normally quite high net worth, And some of them are, for example, investors. And I can think of several people who I have worked with or work with 
who are investors in things like strategies to offset climate change. And for those people, it is an issue. So what I'd say is that the sample with whom I work is very much a biased one and isn't representative of the everyday person who's more likely to be worried at the moment about things like looking after kids or caring for loved ones during this time or financial concerns because they've recently been furloughed and now they're likely to lose their job. So I think things have changed quite a lot during this COVID-19 pandemic. And one thing that's consistently been shown is that while people's sleep schedules are more regular now than they used to be, and while people are actually spending a little bit longer in bed typically because they have more control over their daily schedules, the quality of their sleep tends to have deteriorated of late. And I think a lot of that reflects increased worry. And for that reason, some of these strategies that we're discussing can be very helpful, along with a couple of other things, one of which is just trying to be very careful about how people curate their social media diets and their media diets in general, and maybe confining their exposure to stressful news to the first half of the waking day if possible. And some simple site blocking apps on phones and laptops and computers can be very helpful to that end. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I've heard it multiple times, like from people who've been quite successful as like, you know, don't read the news, essentially, it, it nearly always is negative, <laughs> to be honest. And I've actually started using, I actually just bought it yesterday, like a, a, a lifetime subscription of an app called Freedom. It's basically mm. just blocks, blocks apps on your on your laptop and uh, on your phone. And funnily enough, it actually kind of gave me a little bit of anxiety when I couldn't check my phone for the whole day. Like it's just because I'm so, so basically wired to just check my phone, like needlessly to, to just check my email or check. And, and it, I know that's kind of a hurdle that I kind of need to come over and ultimately I'm more productive. Um, but, but it's, it's funny that I actually got a little bit of a, I, I guess it's just FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Um, and there has been some work looking at young people showing that if they go without exposure to social media for a day or so, then they find it extremely aversive. But interestingly, Adam, I've actually used Freedom and what was the name of the conjunction? There was Antisocial was the other app. I don't know if it still exists, but they were by the same company. And what I found when using them was that initially – it was a bit of a struggle, but then within a few days of using it, I actually just completely forgot to set it. And I wasn't inclined to look at that type of information because I'd started to ingrain the habit. Mm, yeah, that, that's uh, pretty interesting. And I use uh, like a to-do list app as well. It's like, that's something that I really struggle with is um, always ha- always having things to do. And I've, I've read mm. it somewhere or listened to it somewhere that like, our brain is is not necessarily made for storing information, but more so processing it. I don't know how scientifically rigorous that is, but at least it fits with my confirmation bias of uh, <laughs> using a, a to-do list. So it, it helped me a lot when I actually use, I actually use another app and it sounds like I'm just like trying to sell loads of apps here, but Todoist, and I'm sure there's loads of other ones as well, but mm. it I just list out what I need to do. And a lot of stuff, I don't actually even do it, <laughs> but uh, it just, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I need to do this. I need to follow up with this person or I need to, I need to, you know, send an email to this person or, you know, whatever I need to I need to pay my fee or to my value registration tax on my new car. <laughs> That's what I need to do. <laughs> I need to do this week. Um, but it just, instead of it, me kind of like 
over and over playing it in my mind. Oh, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Trying to remember the things I need to do. It just kind of takes it from my head onto the onto the the, the screen or onto the piece of paper, and then just kind of gives me a little bit of mental relief. Um, I don't think I can ever kind of check that off because, like yourself, I would say anytime you do something, it just fills up with more things that you need to do because you have this progressive mindset. Whereas you'll find something else that you need to do. Um, <laughs> fit into that time. Yeah, and I'm like that too. But it's interesting in that I think both of us probably feel quite a strong sense of time famine at times, as if there's not enough hours in the day for us to get everything done that we need to do. Whereas if you look at the research on psychological health, and I think people who feel more time affluent generally fare better. And so making some spaces in daily life for a bit of mind wandering or things that you don't necessarily perceive to be directing you towards a specific goal is really important to long-term health. Mm, yeah. I, I think like for me reading non, I suppose reading books that aren't necessarily going to help me with say my, my study, for example, like mm. not nutrition related or training related, which I like to read, like reading a, a book, um, like yesterday I bought like letters to, uh, or, or one of Seneca's book, one of uh, his book of letters, basically. I can't remember the name of it. Now, mm. but, um, I, it's not necessarily going to help me and it takes it kind of, I need to sit down and really read. I'm reading another book, book by a guy called Alan the Botton. Um, yeah. Which book? It's called the school of life. It's actually, oh, right. I yeah. love, I love some of his books. I love states, anxiety and yeah. constellations of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah, so I actually read that one. I read it ages ago, but then I read it again a couple of weeks ago. So then I saw this new book, and then I just bought it, and it's and just halfway through it. But it's hard for me to kind of put time because I almost feel like I'm wasting time. So I need to kind of plan more. And the same with goes with like even social time, like with my girlfriend or whatever. I live with her, but it's it's not like it's it's dead time. Obviously not. That's it's important, but it seems mm. that you it's hard to kind of oh, we could be doing this or it could be doing that, you know, or I need to get this done. So that's why I think uh, pl- planning time is like, extremely important. And I, honestly, I'm actually kind of bad at that um, just consistently. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty important to the health of your relationship too. I, I realize this. I live with my girlfriend too, and I need to block off time with her in which I'm not doing anything related to anything to do with work. And... I feel at times like I need to schedule that. Obviously you want to retain some spontaneity in your relationship, but when it feels like you're under the cosh and a swimming in everything you need to get done, I think actually having a girlfriend is great because sometimes it forces you to press pause yeah. and, and, and take some time off that stuff so you can actually recharge your batteries. Mm. It's not like you're gonna you book in meetings with her for next week or something. <laughs> I think that that would be the demise of the relationship. It um, would. But but to go back on the you're just talking about insomnia. So to clarify what what you mean by insomnia, mm. what I would kind of think of insomnia is somebody who just can't sleep at all. But from your explanations, it seems like perhaps there's maybe levels of insomnia, and it's it's not just somebody who just cannot sleep. No, it's not. And there are different types of insomnia. Simply categorizing insomnia has been quite a difficult task over the years. And people have taken different approaches to trying to do so. But 
Yes, insomnia is not the complete absence of sleep. And interestingly, one of the things that you commonly see in people who have insomnia is what's known as sleep state misperception, in which they feel like they're awake for perhaps even the entire night. But if you measure their sleep objectively using, for example, polysomnography, which is the gold standard way of assessing sleep, then what you instead find is that much of that time they're actually asleep. It's just that there are various metabolic processes going on in their brains which lead them to have the sense that they're awake. But certainly that the sleep doesn't tend to be quite as restorative as the sleep of people who have healthy sleep. Mm. And on that, just there, do you, do you think that like when you experience dreams that you all, you're not sure if you're awake or you're asleep and then mm. next thing you, know, you actually are like awake in real life is that is that like lighter sleep or, or is that something to do with, i don't really want to turn this into like an episode of joe rogan podcast but, uh, <laughs> you, you get you get what i mean yeah we we dream in multiple stages of sleep so the predominant stage is rapid eye movement sleep and Typically, the relative proportion of time that we spend in rapid eye movement sleep increases over the course of the evening, such that in the early morning, shortly before we wake, people are normally spending more time in that stage. And for that reason, they're more likely to remember their dreams if they wake up at, say, 8 a.m. versus if they wake up at, say, 4 a.m. And interestingly, one of the things that we've seen in recent times is that people are experiencing more vivid dreams. And I think the reason for this, and people refer to this as COVID-19 dreams, but the reason for this is that because people can sleep in now, or at least they can more often, they're more likely to wake up from this stage of sleep. So they're more likely to remember their dreams. And the other thing is that dreams seem to be very important or the stage of sleep in which we dream seems to be very important to the regulation of our emotions. But with that said, we don't just dream in REM sleep. We may also dream in some of the lighter stages of sleep. So stage one sleep, for example, we, we may have dream-like images, but certainly the types of very vivid and bizarre dreams that we experience tend to occur in REM sleep. And interestingly, the content of the dreams tends to relate to some of the things that have been weighing on our minds of late. So, for example, it's quite common for people to report that they wake up processing something they were concerned about the previous evening. And interestingly, people who are disposed to insomnia may experience a particular disruption in REM sleep late in the evening, which may in part result from focusing too much on negative things shortly before the sleep period, which is one more reason that for these people establishing some sort of relaxation routine in two hours or so before bedtime is so important. And having some of these strategies to help them better cope with their stresses is so important. Mm. And is there any truth to the idea that, I don't know if it's an idea or it's actually, it's scientifically proven, but that we, we this, the stages of sleep that we have at the cycles that we should wake up at the end of a specific cycle and that means we would be either less disturbed or, or more well-rested in the morning, and therefore we should perhaps try and plan when we wake up based off of what time we sleep at? 
This is tricky because I think a lot of people sense that their sleep is some sort of quite regular phenomenon in which they go through these neat, orderly 90-minute sleep cycles in which they progress through the lighter stage of sleep, slow wave sleep, and then to REM sleep. And they therefore feel that they can take some multiple of an hour and a half and assume that if they set their alarm, their alarm at some time that's a multiple of one and a half, then they'll wake up out of the correct stage of sleep and feel more restored the next day. But sleep is much more chaotic than that. And for that reason, what I would typically suggest is that, A, if you have healthy sleep, you don't wake to an alarm. And we can touch on this later, but there's been a lot of research in recent times on sleep extension and people who are otherwise healthy showing that it can benefit multiple aspects of metabolism, cognition, and athletic performance. However, if somebody has been struggling with their sleep, if somebody has insomnia, for instance, then setting a fixed wake time is really important. And I'll often have people do that in the first couple of weeks that I'm helping them. And one of the reasons for that is that if you set a fixed wake time and and you don't sleep in, then it helps with your sleep regularity, which is a key component of sleep health. Sleep isn't just about getting enough sleep or getting high quality sleep. The timing of sleep is important too, as is the regularity of all of those different things. But then B, if people wake up at a fixed time each day, then occasionally they will slightly restrict their sleep. And for people who are struggling to sleep through the night or struggling to fall asleep at the start of the night, that can be advantageous because it helps them build lots of pressure to sleep during the day. And then when they have all of this pressure to sleep, their sleep is more likely to be higher quality and consolidated at night, if that makes sense. And there's specifically a type of behavioral therapy that's used with these people in cognitive behavior cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia programs named bedtime restriction therapy or sleep restriction therapy or sleep consolidation therapy in which you take the sleep data that you've observed from the first week or two of monitoring the patient's sleep or the individual sleep and you use their average sleep duration to fix their time in bed each night. So if you find out, for example, that somebody who's been sleeping for six hours each night, they spent 10 hours in bed, so their sleep is 60% efficient, then you would have this person go through a period of time in which they delay their bedtime and fix their wake time such that they're now only spending six hours in bed each evening, which is going to be really hard for the first couple of weeks, but very quickly with all of that pressure to sleep, their quality of sleep will improve dramatically. And then as the quality and the efficiency of the sleep remains high, so perhaps sleep efficiency above 85% or so, they'll slowly start to move their bedtime earlier. And then after a few weeks or a few months of this type of intervention, they're now retaining that high sleep quality, but also getting as much sleep as they need. Mm. and how do you quantify someone's actual sleep time do do you use some sort of technology or is that just subjective feedback of like i was in bed 10 hours but i actually slept for six yeah so in the case of something like the consensus sleep diary that i use it it is just self-reported and 
it entails questions related to things like the time at which somebody goes to bed, the time at which somebody then actually tries to fall asleep, how long it takes them to fall asleep, at what time they wake up, at what time they then get out of bed, and how many times and for how long they wake up during the night. And based on all of that, you can estimate somebody's sleep duration and then also estimate their time in bed. And based on those two variables, you can estimate their sleep efficiency and use that information over time to set appropriate bedtimes for them. And one more thing to add is just that if you have somebody who reports very short sleep, and by very short, I mean perhaps less than five and a half hours or so, I wouldn't necessarily recommend restricting time in bed to less than five and a half hours. Typically, I would cap the shortest time in bed recommendation that I would use at five and a half hours because I think it might be irresponsible suggesting anything less than that over time because we probably do need a certain amount of sleep. But one thing to note is that it might seem, based on the studies of sleep loss that have been done, that this type of approach might not be good for people's health because they're not getting as much sleep. But actually, the converse is true. Based on the studies of CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that have been done, what typically happens is that the improvement in sleep quality and duration over time more than outweighs any short-term loss of sleep in people who have insomnia. And for people who are more interested in this, what I'll say is that there are various online programs developed for people who have insomnia, which are quite efficacious. And I think the best of those is the Sleepio program, which is available for free in some parts of the UK. If you look it up online, in certain postcodes, it's available for free. And for people who have more severe insomnia, they may need some one-on-one guidance. What was that called? Sleepy-eyed? Sleep. Sleepy-eyed, sleep, and then I-O, all as one word. Oh, sleepy-eyed. Cool. Um, what would you recommend for somebody who, say, has an, a sporadic schedule that perhaps works late one day and, and has to work early perhaps the next day? Is it, is it just a case of making the best of a, a bad situation? Yeah, it's... It's really tricky. I actually recently wrote a review paper about shift work, which is going to be published shortly. And that goes into a lot more detail on some relevant subjects. But Mm. in short, these people really need to focus on doing what they can to enhance their sleep quality. And they can use numerous strategies that we've discussed today to that end. But what they have to remember is that if, they don't have that type of control over their schedules, then their sleep's not going to be perfect. But if they can do everything they can to support their sleep health, then that's all they can do. And they should give themselves a bit of a break for that reason. And they will also benefit from certain strategies to support their waking function too, when their sleep has been disturbed. So for example, there's been some work recently showing that when people do low to moderate intensity exercise shortly after waking up before a night shift, then that may enhance their performance, but it may also facilitate their sleep onset after the night shift. And for people who have to go through a period of time in which they're really short on sleep, 
I think that certain supplements can be helpful in that context. And caffeine's been the most widely studied of those. I think caffeine is a double-edged sword and it needs to be used judiciously. But while this hasn't been tested formally, I do think that creatine might be particularly helpful in this context. And the reason for that is that if you think about caffeine and how it works, then primarily it acts as what's known as an adenosine receptor antagonist. So structurally, caffeine is quite similar to adenine and it can block the interaction of adenosine with its receptors and the accumulation of adenosine with prolonged wakefulness results in that increased pressure to sleep that we experience. And so by offsetting that interaction, caffeine blocks the sleepiness signal. The corollary of that, of course, is that when somebody then abstains from caffeine, they're often very sleepy and their performance is impaired. Creatine, on the other hand, boosts phosphocreatine stores in both tissues such as skeletal muscle, but the brain also. And what that means is that the body can more rapidly recycle ATP. And so the accumulation of free adenosine over the course of extended wakefulness may be slower, resulting in less pressure to sleep and possibly a lower sleep need, although that hasn't been experimentally proven in humans yet. It has been shown in rodents. And for that reason, I think that if somebody is really burning the candle necessarily, maybe they're deployed on some sort of mission or maybe they're going through some sort of extended endurance event that entails prolonged sleep loss. I think taking a dose of creatine, probably it's something like 0.1 grams of creatine per kilogram of body mass per day is a pretty good way to go. Yeah, I, I remembered that uh, when I was doing my bodybuilding prep last year, I think it was from about, I'd say, I'd say about June or May until about November, literally that, because that was the, the, the point that those were like single or like below 7% at least body fat. I just could not sleep like at, at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was getting some sleep, but I'd go to bed, like I'd be wide awake as well, but I'd be like generally fatigued have like this systematic fatigue but could not sleep yeah. and no matter what i did uh like just melatonin anything and um, obviously caffeine up to my eyeballs during the day but <laughs> that i i could i'd wake up before five and i'd be wide awake it's obviously it's to do with you know just the, the, basically i was almost dying from competitive competitive <laughs> starvation but, uh, but yeah. yeah that's that's a very common anecdote And I think a lot of that revolves around the fact that your body wants to go out and seek food. Mm. And there are things that you can try and do to mitigate that, which revolve around many of the things that we've discussed. So improving diet timing and not going overboard with caffeine and maybe taking some things to support your sleep according to your particular sleep phenotype. So the source of your sleep disturbances. But the reality is that for competitors, energy availability is going to be so low that, I think light sleep and short sleep are almost inevitable. And in that context, I think taking creatine is potentially especially useful. Yeah. Um, If you like, this is one of my final questions, but if you wake up in the morning and you're still tired, does that mean that you haven't slept well? No, not necessarily. And that might depend on things like the stage of sleep from which you awake 
type of sleepiness that people commonly experience is known as sleep inertia. And you're more likely to have that type of sleep inertia if you've recently been in one of the deeper stages of sleep. So I, I wouldn't necessarily make that association. And the other thing to touch on what you mentioned earlier is that it's common for people who have experienced disturbed sleep of late to be quite fatigued, but also to be wide awake. And so there's an important distinction to make between sleepiness and fatigue. If you take people who have insomnia, for instance, then they're often very fatigued. So their bodies might feel heavy and it might be a slog doing certain things, but they're not sleepy. If you had them try and nap during the daytime, they'd find it impossible to fall asleep. Whereas if you have healthy people do the same thing, then they might not be nearly as fatigued and they might be fresh as a daisy. But if you then have them nap around lunchtime during that time of day, which we typically have a lull in our drive to stay awake, then they might fall asleep quite quickly. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I actually used to always fall asleep when, in the evening before I went to train. I would fall asleep and then wake back up and train and then uh, it was it was crazy. Um, I also had experienced this phenomenon in in university when I was doing my undergraduate many years ago. When I was in French literature class, I would get this massive amount of sleep pressure to fall asleep, and then it would be gone as soon as the class is over. <laughs> That's probably probably the effects of reading Albert Camus. Oh yeah, I actually did read that, but yeah, uh, not very useful anymore. Um, the final question for you, we, we kind of touched on a little bit with the caffeine and creatine, but is there any anything else that you recommend for, say, s- stress reduction? I know we talked about L-theanine and you know, some adaptogens, and I, I guess if there's any kind of psychologist listening, they would always kind of recommend that you, if you have any stress, that you kind of, that the supplements are probably more of a plaster than anything else, but mm-hmm. what would you recommend for, for that kind of situation? Yeah, I I would start with the behavioral and cognitive therapies. We've touched on some of them, but just to mention a couple more, progressive muscle relaxation can be very helpful. And what this entails is when somebody is in bed or otherwise needs to wind down, if they contract the muscles on the soles of their feet, hold the contraction for six seconds or so, and then relax and exhale at the end of that contraction, after which they slowly scan up through their body, doing the same thing with other muscles until they're at the top of their body and doing something similar with the muscles of their face, then that exercise can be very relaxing, can help people fall back to sleep more quickly. Breathing exercises are widely used to help people better cope with stress and can be effective in insomnia too. And there are lots of different types of these, including things like box breathing. I particularly like meditation, and some meditation focuses on the breath. This type of focused attention meditation, I think, can be an integral part of helping people develop strategies to better cope with stress. And there's been some work recently showing that if you look at all the different studies of mindfulness-based stress reduction that have been done on patients who have insomnia, then it consistently helps people fall asleep faster, improve their sleep quality and sleep slightly longer. So I think mindfulness-based interventions can be very handy. And I typically have people do these early in the day, shortly after waking, just because most people find it easier to develop habits at that time of day 
than at other times of day. So for people who are experiencing stress and anxiety, I think mindfulness interventions can be very helpful. Like anything, it's not for everyone. And occasionally, very occasionally, people will respond negatively to it. But I think for most people, it's a really helpful strategy. And then there are some other things too. So if somebody feels very tuned to their bodily sensations, for instance, if they have some pain or if they feel like their heart is pounding, then some simple imagery exercises can be helpful. And that might entail imagining some scene that the person finds very relaxing. So they might be outside on a sunny day with a loved one. And that can help them escape those bodily sensations and thereby fall asleep faster. Another strategy that I quite like is just imagining the end of a TV series or film that you've been watching and playing that out in your mind. It's a form of distraction that can be helpful if you're finding it hard to fall back to sleep. And then beyond those things, there are some other CBTI type interventions. So specifically for negative sleep related thoughts, keeping a diary of negative thoughts during the day can be particularly helpful for people who are concerned about things like the negative consequences of poor sleep on next day function. Somebody feels like they don't sleep well tonight, then they're going to be hopeless at work tomorrow. Then keeping this type of diary on them makes a lot of sense and what this would entail is simply noting the negative thought noting the context in which it arose considering the evidence that supports the thought considering the evidence that refutes the thought and then reframing the thought in a more adaptive way so based on those data is that thought really true it's probably not and is there a way that you can spin it to think more positively about it? And those types of interventions, when done repeatedly over time, can be very helpful, especially in the later stages of these types of cognitive behavioral therapy interventions. And then beyond those things, I think the sleep supplements of the world probably come last, but there are a few things that might be helpful in certain instances. And I don't know if we touched on this last time, but just to quickly run through some of these. I think if someone's struggling to fall asleep at the start of the night, then of course it depends on why they're struggling to fall asleep, but there's quite strong evidence showing that anywhere between about 300 micrograms and 5 milligrams of melatonin can be helpful. And in terms of brands, I quite like the Life Extension 300 microgram product and the Swanson 1 milligram product. If you can't get your hands on melatonin because it's regulated in your country, which it shouldn't be, but that's neither here nor there, then L-tryptophan is a precursor to melatonin via serotonin. And two grams of L-tryptophan may be helpful. And if you're struggling to sleep through the night, then it might make sense to use a timed-release melatonin formulation. Of the over-the-counter ones, there's a type named Microactive, which has been shown to be effective. And there's a product made by a company that's named RestWell, which is one word with an E on the end, which I've used before and like. And then if anxiety is the source of your sleep disturbances, then Adam, you mentioned earlier, you've consumed L-theanine and ashwagandha. And there was a systematic review on L-theanine recently showing that it routinely reduces anxiety in people who are prone to that. And the dose of that would probably be anywhere between 200 and 400 milligrams. And I'd recommend using sun theanine, L-theanine, 
which is a synthetic form of L-theanine that's been particularly widely used in the research. And that's actually the L-theanine that we use in long range fuel as well. And then ashwagandha, 600 milligrams of KSM 66 might be helpful. There's been some work recently showing that it's useful in people who have insomnia. And the nice thing is touched on earlier is that ashwagandha may have some other interesting effects on health and performance. And that's a really important note. When you take a supplement, you should consider the entire array of effects on your body, not just the effects on the thing that you're specifically targeting. Then if somebody has pain, then for some people who have low levels of vitamin D, vitamin D may be helpful. The dose is very much dependent on somebody's needs. And there's also some interesting work on tart cherry juice on exercise induced pain showing that if people consume maybe 60 milliliters of tart cherry juice a day, specifically as Montmorency tart cherry juice, then that might reduce some exercise related pain. And then finally, if people are experiencing jet lag, which is probably quite unlikely at the moment, given the state of the world, but if they are, then one milligram of melatonin can be helpful. And I always recommend the website jetlagrooster.com to optimize the timing at which you take the melatonin in that particular instance. And then finally, we just add one more for general health as well. I think magnesium is fine. A lot of people take it for sleep. The evidence for magnesium improving sleep is very weak, but interestingly, most people don't get enough magnesium in their diets. And when they take magnesium, especially people who have poor cardiometabolic health, they tend to experience quite dramatic improvements in certain health outcomes, things like blood sugar regulation and blood pressure. And 200 milligrams or so of magnesium a day in the form of citrate or bisglycinate is a pretty good option for most people. Yeah, I think that you, you made some interesting points there. Um, one with regards to what other effects does it have on your health? I think uh, I recently got a, an email from the, the food safety authority because of that, because of that nootropic, I can't remember if we talked about it on air or off air, but, um, that I had, had developed many years ago and mm. it actually showed that vinpocetine had, uh, effects fetal development. So it's now illegal to sell that. So luckily enough, yeah. I, I didn't sell it, but, um, and then also the point, the point with the, the magnesium, um, is that much like other sports supplements like nitrates or even like some citrulline malate, they, they may have like more pronounced effects in people who have like a, a shitty diet and don't exactly. get nitrates or magnesium through their diet. But with those who already are, are like consuming fruits and vegetables or consuming a lot of yeah. magnesium or nitrates or whatever, they're not going to get as much pronounced effect. Um, I'm always yeah. curious about why ZMA is, is so at least it's pushed by supplement companies as a sleep supplement. Um, like what, what's mm. the B6 and the, and the zinc that improves sleep. Um, but Greg, where can we find more information about you? It's been great to chat once again, man. You can find more information via my website and via my social media, but I'm actually more keen to direct people to resilient nutrition. If they want to find out more about the products and that website is resilientnutrition.com. And we're on Instagram at Resilient Nuts and also on Facebook at Resilient Nuts. And then my own social media, Instagram and Twitter 
at Greg Potter PhD. I hate that handle. It sounds so self-indulgent. I only picked it because at Greg Potter was taken, so I needed some way of differentiating myself. But now I feel a bit like a loser anytime I say it. And then I also have a website, which is gregpotterphd.com, which I desperately need to update, but I'm just a little bit busy with other stuff, and so I haven't got around to that recently. But please feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to answer any questions or whatever. Just, just give me a bit of time to get back to you. Awesome, Greg. Thanks so much for coming on again today, man. Pleasure. Thanks, Adam. So I hope you enjoyed that insightful conversation with Greg. I really enjoyed it. And please do reach out to me and let me know if you've listened to the podcast or you've taken anything away from it or tag me on your stories. I always find that really valuable and it means a lot to me when people do that. It makes this all worthwhile. And if you do want to find out more about coaching for myself, you can always check that out at healthmastery.co. That's .co. But until next time, when we get further and other great guests, I... Bid you adieu.